Hey skimmers, before we get into the show, have you listened to Revisionist History? It's a podcast from Pushkin that re-examines something from the past and asks whether we got it right the first time. On the new season, Malcolm Gladwell takes on The Little Mermaid. On the surface, it's a kid-friendly story about a woman who falls in love and finds her voice. But lurking underneath is a much darker message. Malcolm dives in and enlists a team of experts to write a new script and a star-studded cast to act it out. Listen to Revisionist History wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Skim This. Are we the only ones not completely pumped for the Olympics? We'll break down the latest from Japan. Also, what do Taco Bell and smartphone makers have in common? Turns out, they're both feeling the pinch from COVID-related supply chain shortages. Later, as the Delta variant spreads across the U.S., we asked an expert, is it even possible to convince someone to get vaccinated, or should we just be holding more lotteries to get people to roll up their sleeves? And finally, if you've been feeling cash-strapped this wedding season, you are not alone, trust me. We've got some tips on how to save money and still have fun doing it. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to a few headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, turns out we can have a COVID-free season of The Bachelorette, but not a COVID-free Olympics. The future of the Olympics is now in question. COVID cases sending shockwaves through the Tokyo Olympic Village. That concern is growing. COVID really is top of mind. Here's the context. A number of individual sports leagues were able to compete over the last year with the help of bubbles that protected tested players from the general public. But flying in athletes from more than 200 nations, many of which absolutely don't have COVID under control, to a single location where everyone literally lives together, that's a whole different story. The opening ceremonies aren't even until Friday, but it's already a cluster. COVID cases are rising sharply across Tokyo and within the Olympic Village, where six athletes have already tested positive. Out of 11,000 athletes, that number is actually pretty low, but it's almost certain to keep rising. All right, our next headline involves some bad puns. Taco Bell fans may have to think outside the bun and the burrito. Taco Bell might be in for some tortilla trouble. Some spots don't even have hot sauce, sour cream, or even soda. Here's the context. The ingredient shortages facing fast food restaurants like Taco Bell this week are part of a larger pattern playing out across the U.S. as a lack of workers is reportedly causing transportation delays. All right, maybe we can skip the drive-through for a few weeks, but living without our devices, that's another story. For a few months, the world has been running really low on the microchips that power electronic gadgets. COVID has caused global supply chain issues, but this shortage is also being driven by the really high cost of purchasing new machines to make microchips. Those are needed to keep up with demand, but they're not being purchased. All of that has left companies with too few chips to make everything from cars to video game systems. And now the shortages are catching up with the smartphone industry. As a result, Samsung and Google are planning to send out fewer phones than usual in the coming months. iPhones might be spared production issues, but prices could still go up for everyone. And that's on top of the already higher cost of next-gen 5G phones. 
So if you're planning to replace your phone in the next few months, brace yourself for some sticker shock. Our last headline this week was momentarily out of this world. Into, uh, there they are, exiting the capsule. There's Mr. Bezos. This week, the world's richest man decided he was over things on this planet and sent himself into outer space for about four whole minutes. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos blasted off with three other people, his brother Mark, 82-year-old female aviator Wally Funk, and an 18-year-old physics student. What a squad. The trip showcased Bezos' private space company, Blue Origin. And once he came back to Earth, Bezos said, I want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer, because you guys paid for all this. That didn't go down well. Critics of Bezos immediately said, hold up, Amazon's workers may have paid too high a price for your little jaunt to space, including unsafe working conditions and low wages. And even though Bezos says workers and customers are the ones who paid for the flight, most people won't actually be able to afford to fly to space themselves. While he won't say exactly how much a ticket costs, Bezos says auctions for space flights so far have generated nearly $100 million for Blue Origin. So if you have a spare $100,000 lying around... And we have liftoff! As the Delta variant becomes the dominant strain of COVID in the U.S., health officials are now calling this a pandemic of the unvaccinated. In fact, the Surgeon General now says 99.5% of people dying from COVID were unvaccinated. But despite that, the threat of a more contagious variant and cases and hospitalizations going up, the pace of vaccinations in the U.S. has been pretty flat. Which had us wondering, what actually works to convince people to get vaccinated? To find out, we called up Ashley Kurtzinger, and I'm Associate Director for Public Opinion and Survey Research at the Kaiser Family Foundation. She's an expert on this because she's talked to a lot of Americans about why they decided to get or not get their shots. Back in January, the Kaiser Family Foundation conducted a survey asking tens of thousands of adults about their vaccine plans. At the time, 23% said, no, I'm not interested in getting the COVID vaccine. And this July, Kaiser did a follow-up survey because it turns out around one in four people in that group actually ended up getting vaccinated. So Kurtzinger and her team recently followed up with them to ask, what exactly changed your mind? The first thing that convinced people was pretty simple, talking with friends and family, which it turns out is way more effective than any crazy incentives your state or local government may have been giving out. It turns out it's not these big lotteries. It's not these financial incentives. It's conversations with their friends and family members. They were initially concerned about side effects or even the long-term effects of the vaccine. And after seeing their friends and family members get a vaccine with minimal or even no side effects, they're like, oh, I feel like it's safe. I feel like this is a decision I can make for myself. Kurtzinger told us another trusted messenger that helped patients understand the risks and benefits of vaccination were people's doctors. So initially, you know, we know that there's a lot of misinformation and myths about the COVID-19 vaccine, whether it's impacting fertility or that there's actually live virus in the vaccine. And so individuals had conversations with their doctors. 
And their doctors explain the safety of the vaccine, explain that it doesn't mean that, you know, it's going to lead to infertility. And then those conversations also led to people making decisions to get vaccinated. So while it's helpful to hear public health info from people you trust, the passing of time played a role here, too. Since what might have seemed like new and scary vaccine info earlier this year is more normal now that vaccines are widely available. When you think back to January, there was a conversation about the vaccines, Operation Warp Speed, brand new technology. This has never been done before. And so I feel like people had legitimate concerns about the safety of the vaccine. They had questions that they wanted answered by not politicians, by healthcare providers. And so after they've seen millions of Americans get vaccinated with really minimal side effects and finding out that you may have a sore arm, you may have a low-grade fever for 24 hours, but really no lasting side effects from the vaccine, that's when those kind of fears dissipated. And they were like, okay, maybe this is something that is the right choice for myself or my family members. Another motivating factor, fear of missing out. Being limited in terms of your activities, especially taking flights, people had said like, oh, if I'm not going to be able to fly internationally and I have to travel for work, that may be um, one of those motivating factors to getting vaccinated. Getting to go to events, those sorts of things, some of those in that definitely not category. So those that had initially said, no, there's no way I'm getting a vaccine, but ended up getting vaccinated, they were more likely to be like, okay, I don't want to be left out of society. I don't want to be stuck at home. I don't want to be wearing a mask forever. And one last finding we thought was pretty interesting, that despite all the public messaging around getting a vaccine to protect your family or your community, most people who changed their minds did it to protect themselves, not others. So those are four things Kurtzinger and her team found that have convinced people to roll up their sleeves. But what about people who are still hesitant? Kurtzinger told us this group breaks down into two camps, people who could still be convinced and some people who are likely going to say no for a long time. For that second group, Kurtzinger found there's not much that's going to change their minds. A large share of these individuals think that the pandemic has been greatly exaggerated and think that the virus really doesn't pose a risk to their own health and safety. They're not worried about getting sick. So I think we haven't really seen any message or incentive that's going to be persuading those individuals at this point. But for those who are persuadable, Kurtzinger says they're still worried about the long-term effects of the vaccine. So that's why people are and aren't getting a COVID-19 vaccine. But knowing all of this, what can individuals in the government do now to get more people to join in the vaccination effort? Kurtzinger's seen a firsthand example of what could work. So I live in Berkeley, California, which has a very high vaccination rate. And I actually had people come to my door, I think it was three weeks ago now, asking me if I had gotten vaccinated. And then we just started talking and they were doing this kind of door-to-door campaign to try to convince their neighbors, right? It's not something that was sponsored by any health department or anything. It was just a neighborhood group that was like, we want to have conversations with our neighbors and talk about getting vaccinated and sharing their own experiences. And I was like, well, interestingly, that's what our research shows is the most effective is really talking about, you know, what side effects you experience and having that conversation. I think that's going to be a key component of this. In terms of persuading individuals, it's really going to be on 
having those conversations with their neighbors, with their friends, with their family members, talking about why they got vaccinated. But depending on where you live, that might be easier said than done. Unfortunately, we do know that we live in clusters and our friends are in clusters. And so if you are vaccinated, most likely everyone in your household is also vaccinated and most of your friends are vaccinated. And the same thing goes on the other side. So that's where a little bit of our polarization and the fact that we live in these clusters could be problematic because what we really need is friends and family members to have those conversations. And if you don't know any unvaccinated people, then how are you going to have those conversations with them? Look, we know this is kind of a depressing note to end on, but we didn't want to leave you hanging. So here are some tips if you want to persuade someone to get a COVID-19 vaccine. First, it helps to start by listening. Understand their position and hear their concerns. Don't debate them. Then, focus on big-picture facts, like how the vaccine is safe and free. And by the way, it helps to explain why you chose to get vaccinated and what it was like for you. And finally, if they express willingness to consider getting the shot, offer to help them make an appointment or go with them. If you're curious about Kurtzinger's study on vaccine hesitancy, we've left a link to it in our show notes. Things in the U.S. have started to feel a lot more normal lately. Masks are off in most places, restaurants are booked up, sporting events are back on, and people are traveling like it's 2019. We're driving to Florida! But are we actually back to normal if even we just went into the office for the first time this week? What about if we can't even drive into neighboring Canada? Or when roads are clogged because people still aren't taking the subway? And how can we compare normalcy in the U.S. with normalcy in other countries? The Economist decided that was a question worth answering. And the person tasked with crunching the numbers was data journalist James Fransham. He gave us a call this week from a pretty quiet newsroom. I'm in the office today. I'm in central London by Trafalgar Square, and it's still dead around here. There are literally 50 desks around me, and they're all empty. And this is two days after Freedom Day. Freedom Day was England's flashy return to supposed normalcy earlier this week. Relaxed pandemic restrictions now allow Brits to go back into pubs, but obviously the same doesn't go for commuting into work. That paradox is actually captured in The Economist's Global Normalcy Index. Every week, it's updated with info from 50 countries, and it measures how normal life is in each of them. That's done by looking at eight points of data, including travel, recreation and entertainment, retail traffic, and office usage. The results are pretty fascinating, and while there's a lot to sift through, it's actually pretty skimmable. Across these 50 countries, the world is roughly halfway back to normal, while life in some places like Hong Kong is pretty close to how it was in the before times, life in Malaysia, which is dealing with a huge COVID outbreak, is less normal now than the U.S. was during peak quarantine. As for how the U.S. stacks up, we're the 12th most normal, which is pretty normal and can be chalked up to a few factors in The Economist data including more people flying again, going to events, and shopping. But we're still not at the very top because we're one of the countries going into work the least, 
and people are still not down to take public transportation. Knowing all of this, we asked Francham, how do vaccination rates play a role in the normalcy index? He sees the countries in the global normalcy index breaking down into three buckets. So first, I would say, yes, it's the obvious set of countries, North America, Western Europe, whereby there is a strong relationship since the beginning of this year with vaccine programs and their ability to return to some semblance of normality. Countries in the other two buckets, where there aren't a lot of vaccines available, have to deal with some pretty significant trade-offs. The second group of countries, I would say, with Australia, New Zealand, a very good case in point, China, Hong Kong, whereby they haven't had advanced vaccine programs, but they've able to ease restrictions because they've effectively shut up shop, closed borders and minimized infections. This second bucket shows us that something that looks mostly normal is possible without having a ton of vaccines. But it's kind of a fake normal, in which people's freedom of movement in particular is severely restricted. For instance, life is pretty chill in Australia, but tens of thousands of Australian citizens are currently stranded around the world, unable to return because of a strict cap on who can come home. Or take China. It wants to be a global center of the business world. But it's hardly back to business as usual. A lot of foreign visitors are required to quarantine for 14 days at government-sanctioned hotels. And you'll probably be forced to download tracking software on your phone. If that's not your jam, what we're dealing with in bucket one seems pretty good by comparison. And then the third set of countries are those that are perhaps uh, statistics a bit dodgier, so infection rates look lower or death rates look lower, life looks more normal, but actually, in, in fact, you're seeing, you know, Delta variant is, is spreading around sub-Saharan Africa now and bits of the developing world. So more broadly, they have returned to normal, even though infections have been high. It's pretty obvious this third bucket is also worse than what we're dealing with. Sure, a country like Nigeria may be number three on the World Normalcy Index, but reportedly less than 1% of the population is fully vaccinated, leading health experts there and in other African countries to live in a state of fear that a rise in infections could overwhelm health systems. All of which is to say, even if it's frustrating the U.S. isn't fully back to normal, and who knows when that will actually be, Compared to the situation in a lot of other places, it could be a whole lot worse. Okay, we all love weddings, right? Going somewhere new, celebrating with friends and family, enjoying an open bar. But this year, wedding season feels crazier than usual. Because when you add up all of this year's weddings and then throw in the ones that were postponed from last year, suddenly every summer and fall weekend is taken. And your budget is probably struggling to keep up. Or at least mine is. In fact, a 2019 study from The Knot found the average cost of being a wedding guest is $430 per event. And that's not including being in the wedding party, hopping on a long flight, or other added costs that are bound to come up. To figure out how we can all save a little cash while still RSVPing yes, we knew we needed some budgeting help. Enter Bola Shukumbi, 
founder and CEO of Clever Girl Finance. When we told her that all these weddings were causing our bank accounts to suffer, she told us she's been there a lot. I have been there both as a bridesmaid, a family member of someone getting married, and also as a guest, especially when you have to travel for a wedding, a destination wedding, and you factor in hotel costs, airline tickets, and then as someone being in the wedding, you factor in contributing to perhaps a bridal shower or a hen night, your bridesmaid dress, plane tickets. Okay, I'm already stressed thinking about it. But Shokumbi says we don't have to be stressed if we just make a plan from the start. As you're thinking about your finances and your budget, it's really important to be honest and objective with yourself. So starting by looking at all these events you've been invited to and really determining what's it going to cost you. Do you have to travel out of town? What's that going to cost for airline tickets? Do you have to buy a bridesmaid dress? And really getting clear on all those costs. So when you know what all these things are going to cost you, then it's time to make a priority list. This is where we might have to make some tough choices. What events do you absolutely have to be at? And what events do you just kindly and politely decline and maybe just send them them a nice gift at the fraction of the cost of actually attending the event? Okay, now that we've sent our RSVPs, what's next? Once you determine your top priority events that you're going to go to, take those costs and build them into your budget. So how much can you afford to put aside every month to pay for those upcoming plane tickets, those upcoming hotel rooms? So are we talking spreadsheets, a budgeting app, or what? Shokumbi told us as long as you follow it, it doesn't matter where you're tracking this info. I always tell people that when it comes to budgeting, the best method is the one that works for you. So at the end of the day, a budget is you telling your money what to do. And in order to do that, you want to be able to use a method or process that you actively check in with often. That's the whole point. That's how you make your budget successful. So whatever method you choose, try out different ones and find the one that works best for you. And then the goal to be successful with it is to check in, try to plan all of your expenditure in advance of the month. And then even if you slip up, assess what went wrong and apply that to the next month of your budget. Once we've decided we're going and we have our ideal budget set in place, how soon do we actually start booking things? Definitely earlier is typically when things are cheaper. And when you book things early, you're also able to spread out the cost because if you book your flight and your hotel now, then you can put money aside for your outfit. Then you can put money aside for the wedding gift or whatever else you have going on for that event, the dinners leading up to the day. So you give yourself time to plan out your spending for that event. Shokumbi told us there are other ways to save, starting with where you decide to stay and who you're staying with. If you are a guest, I would definitely say seeing who else is going to the wedding and maybe you can share hotel rooms if the wedding is out of town. Seeing if you have to rent a car, maybe you can share the cost of the car rental. But as for Airbnb versus hotel room... I would go with whatever is cheapest and you can get some really cheap Airbnbs And you can get some really cheap hotels. I would say, however, look at the reviews. (laughs) Because you want to be careful where you have to spend a few days. All right. Point taken. Where else can we save? On the stuff we know we don't need. 
I think the default for a wedding is to buy something new to wear. You want to look fabulous. You know, I've seen people spend hundreds, even thousands of dollars on outfits as guests, but everyone is looking at the bride. (laughs) I would challenge listeners to think about exploring their wardrobes or even loaning something from a friend who may have a beautiful dress in your size that doesn't need to wear that dress that weekend. That's a great idea. You can explore other options like Rent the Runway. P.S. Clothing rental services are offering major discounts for first-time users right now. And what about gifts? Is it cool to split a gift with a friend? I don't think it's rude at all. And I think a lot of couples are, there's a lot of different ways that you can give gifts and a lot of different ways that couples are accepting gifts. I've seen many couples accepting gifts to charities or you can contribute to a big pot to pay for their honeymoon. So it just really depends, but there's nothing wrong in giving a joint gift as long as it is meaningful and it's something that the couple will use and you feel comfortable doing that. Okay, now it's time to talk about the elephant in the room, being in the wedding party. Bridesmaids' dresses, bachelorette parties, bridal showers. I think my head is starting to hurt again. But Shokumbi said, if you're getting overwhelmed by the price of basically everything, you should bring up budgets to the rest of the group to get a sense of where people are at. And chances are, someone will thank you because they're stressing too. I think it's just being honest. You can start by testing out the waters. Hey guys, what do you think is a good amount to spend on the bridal shower? I know we're all on a budget or we all have a lot of events or, you know, we all have bills to pay. Let's talk about it. That's a good approach. Or just being honest and say... I really want to participate. I want to contribute to this bridal shower, but my max is X amount of money because I have these other financial obligations. I think people are more understanding than we expect. And if they don't understand, (laughs) that's okay too, because at the end of the day, they're not helping you pay your bills. Having that convo and having it early can really help bring down expenses for the whole wedding party. You can have a voice in terms of how expensive the dress is going to be and try to find a variety of options at different price points to present to all the other bridesmaids so that you guys can agree on something more affordable. You guys can plan a more affordable bridal shower that doesn't have to break the bank by simply being creative and leveraging Pinterest, for example, to come up with fun ideas that are still fabulous and amazing. So there's a number of different things you can do when you think about cost savings, but you have to be intentional about doing the research to make those things happen. Got a wedding hack we haven't mentioned here? Let us know. Send us an email to audio at theskim.com. Our last story today comes from beyond the grave. You were successful and I am successful. And I'm wondering, are you happy? Those are the words of the late chef Anthony Bourdain, just not his actual voice. Last week, the director of a new documentary on Bourdain's life revealed we may have used a little deep fake AI to get what we were looking for. Cue public outrage. Bourdain, who died in 2018, was known for being pretty authentic, so using tech to fake his voice caused a Twitter storm. Anthony Bourdain never got to actually sign off on the use of this tech. That's Karen Howe, the senior AI editor at the MIT Technology Review. She says people's frustrations here are understandable since Bourdain never consented to having his voice used. And as far as anyone knows, never actually spoke the words we heard earlier. 
Also, Howe says it didn't help that the director of the film waited until he was interviewed to admit he'd even used this strange new voice technology in the first place. The technology is so nascent, we aren't yet aware how it could be used. And so it feels even more necessary to actually tell people when it's being used. But that didn't happen. The early days of how it's introduced is pretty important and kind of sets the tone for how people think about it moving forward. Despite Bourdain's AI voice possibly going down as an epic fail, Howe says creators are thinking of some truly inventive ways to use this technology for good. For instance, voice cloning could help people losing their voices because of chronic illnesses continue to speak. And done the right way, people in the entertainment industry can use this tech for good and avoid the Twitter mob. There was actually a documentary that came out last year called Welcome to Chechnya that used visual deepfakes for the first time. And the film is about these LGBTQ activists that live in Chechnya that are trying to hold the government accountable to human rights abuses against the queer community. And the filmmaker wanted to tell their stories without risking their lives because a lot of them live in hiding. So they use deepfakes to actually shield um, swap out the faces of the, the people so that their expressions and the authenticity of their emotions remain the same, but their identity was concealed. And in that particular instance, the filmmaker disclosed it at the beginning of the film. And then also with every person that was shielded in this way, there was a little bit of a halo effect around their face. So you could sort of visually see that it wasn't literally their face. There are some ways that perhaps this technology could be used in very legitimate ways in documentaries, as long as it's properly disclosed. Speaking of a possibly legit way to use this deepfake technology, I'm going to let my AI doppelganger close out the show. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. The Skim's senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Okay, that was weird. But for real, Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish, where we talk all things career. Follow it wherever you listen to your podcasts.